Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. So the main event as we wake up here in New York, the Bank of Japan, the governor, Haruhiko Kuroda, pushing through changes to his radical monetary stimulus program as the central bank prepares for a longer struggle to stoke inflation. Dana Ramoa joining us now. JP Morgan Asset Management Fixed Income Portfolio Manager joins us to discuss. Diana, great to have you with us on the program to get your thoughts on the BOJ. Several tweaks to policy. What was the one that stood out for you? Um, uh, I think... Without a doubt, it's um, the widening of the range um, that they're willing to allow the 10-year um, JGB to fluctuate. So they kept the rate, um, the target for the 10-year at zero, but they moved the range uh, from 0.1 to 0.2, so allowing the possibility that if conditions allowed, 10-year JGBs could trade up to 0.2%. I think that's quite significant. In the grand scheme of things, why is that significant, 0.2% on a 10-year Japanese government bond? Well, first, it's a couple of things. Um, you know, the, the message itself that came out of, of the central bank wasn't that, that um, upbeat a message for the Japanese economy, right? Um, they talked about, they, they reduced their inflation expectations uh, for this year from 1.3 to 1.1, but actually for their focused horizon, they also lowered inflation expectations from 1.8 to 1.6. Keeping in mind that their target is two, um, it actually does raise the question of why do they feel the need to move this rate higher going forward? And the reason for that is because the local banks have been struggling with this low rate environment. It's been denting their profitability. So we're getting to a point now where quantitative easing and the cost of quantitative easing are coming home to roost. Um, and that has implications for policymakers, especially a policymaker such as the Bank of Japan, where they have a price stability mandate, but they also have a financial stability mandate. So the Bank of Japan today also introduced this forward guidance um, added to the policy tweaks with a commitment to keep the current extremely low levels for short-term interest rates and it's low for an extended period of time. And I just wonder, Diana, whether that was cover. There's some people out there this morning questioning whether this is just a stealth beginning of a normalisation of policy at the Bank of Japan. Do you subscribe to that theory at all, Diana? They, the forward guidance um, makes it clear, especially linking it to the VAT hikes that are expected in October 2019. So we still have a long period of time before we're talking, at least for the next 12 months, before we're, we're discussing hikes. So it's not quite um, a, a hike in that extent. Um, I think they are committed because they are nowhere near the inflation target. I think what what this raises is the issue of if we're going to be having this slow glide higher in the 10-year JGBs, so if as conditions improve, it warrants them to let the 10-year go higher or if pressure on these banks remain, what are the implications for the rest of the world? I think that's the bigger question, right? Um, what happens to U.S. rates? Um, and we saw a bit of that, a mini preview this week on, and last week yeah. when the headlines first came out. Diana, more than anyone we speak to, you blend in portfolio management along with your wonderful trading experience. How, what do you see in the trading market of foreign exchange that gives you any signal 
that we move from idiosyncratic stories like Turkey, Argentina, over to a more correlated currency EM issue? What do you look for from a trading desk that begins to show that things are going to coalesce into some form of fear? Um, so there's a few things that we keep an eye on. We look at um, volatility implied vaults. Um, I think one thing that's been quite um, interesting in the in the recent period of weakness, in particularly in emerging markets, is just how low volatility in other assets um, have been. So whilst that remains true, and whilst you know markets are able to treat idiosyncratic stories as that and volatility doesn't pick up, correlations remain um, quite stable. I think we remain in a situation where when you do see those sorts of wobbles, you should try and look for where the value is and buy. I think, you know, the, the, the Bank of Japan today was important because if mm-hmm. we do start to get a sense that you're getting more synchronized normalization, and that's not what we've seen at all, um, if it's not just the Fed doing all the work, if the BOJ is now coming out and saying we, we are looking at normalizing and the ECB likewise, um, then I think that could become a much bigger right. bigger problem for risk assets. But you and I have studied the chapter in Econ 402. It's called HOPE. And to steal from President Obama, hope and audacity. I'm looking at a chart I put out on Twitter for Bloomberg Radio, Diana, and it's nominal GDP in Japan. And it is irrefutably in the last two and a half years rolled over. They can jawbone it all they want. Do they see an escape from deflation? And particularly, do they see an escape from disinflation where they turn the vector around? Um, I think, and that's why I say the message from the BOJ today was not a positive economic message. I think there is a lot of um, hope that goes into some of these projections, and the inflation numbers today that they put out still look extremely unrealistic in our view. Um, they released um, a paper on the inflation, and what they're saying is, um, yeah. this was on a separate paper saying inflation is low because of the usual suspect, global competition, um, you know, low inflation expectations. Um, an aging population preferring low inflation, risk of us employees, etc. Some of these things are structural issues. They're not going to go away. Um, so I, I do agree with you. I think, you know, Japan's issues are very, very entrenched. Is Europe's issues entrenched? I mean, I get the idea, you know, we can all look at the charts and say Japan's uh, its own unique experiment. But I'm taken by the idea, John Farrow, that GDP came in a little light in Europe and core inflation there is all of 1.1 percent. I mean, Diana, and help John and I, is this on the edge of Japan? I mean, is Europe basically on the edge of the challenges that Japan has? I don't think Europe is quite where Japan is. Um, I think, you know, when you look at the output gaps in Europe, we still have a long way to come. Um, Labor market dynamics, there's still a lot of room for improvement there. Um, So I think the European story is slightly better in that respect, in terms of the long-term prospects than what Japan faces. This has been wonderful. Diana Mo, thank you so much. JP Morgan, just thrilled to have her with us. Kim Schoenholtz with us with NYU, New York University. And, of course, he knows a dead meeting when he sees one. How did we get into this 
where we have dead and live meetings. Is this your fault? My fault. I hope not. Um, look, I think that they've they developed this habit of only making uh, policy changes when they have press conferences. The good news is that they're going to have a press conference with every meeting next year. So this this habit we get of, away from the stupidity. I think yeah, we're going to yeah. get away from it pretty quickly. John, they, I mean, they I, didn't I, used to have press conferences to begin with, Kim. That's that right. Sort of gives you an idea of how much things have changed. Yeah, well, they they also didn't used to provide their quarterly forecasts or their quarterly projections. They've become far more transparent. That's all good news. John, how does a Carney press conference vary from a Draghi press conference? It's kind of the same. It's kind of the same. I don't think it's too different. It's quite orchestrated yeah. in the same way. They open up with a statement. They sort of reveal their forecast, but uh, the Bank of England puts everything out all at once. So everyone's already got this stuff. So they're largely repeating what we already know. And then the Q&A starts, and the Q&A is often the interesting bit. Kim, it does raise a question, though. They used to be able to do stuff without a news conference. They used to be able to do stuff without telling the market they've done stuff. Um, and now in an era of radical transparency, they seem to have a problem stepping away. How much of a problem is it? Well, I, I think it's pretty small. I think the transparency is a big plus. I mean, think of it this way. By being transparent, they condition us to anticipate their behavior. Um, we know, sort of know the things that drive them, whether it's strong growth or rising inflation. We know what changes their policy. We know that when they're running a very accommodative policy, they're going to be uncomfortable with it if the economy is already doing well, that they're going to want to get back to something like normal. Because we know that, we can anticipate it, and it shows up in market prices long before they act. Well, that's the problem when you are tightening. When you're easing, that's not a problem. That just amplifies the accommodation you're trying to offer to the markets. When you're tightening, the market can often run ahead of itself before the Bank of Japan has even done anything. And we actually saw that to some extent with this meeting. Is it not a problem at all, do you think, when they're tightening and they're trying to remove accommodation and the market just keeps running ahead of it? I think the problem is when they're not communicating clearly. And I think what you observe, the central bank in Japan is running this extraordinary policy of capping the long-term bond yield. We haven't seen a central bank do that since the Fed stopped doing it in 1951. So there's a reason why that's a, that's a rare policy. It's extremely aggressive and it's difficult to escape. It creates lots of disturbance in markets and you're seeing that. So I, I don't think it's such a bad thing. I think the problem yeah. is... They need to communicate clearly. Would you be willing to say that the JGB market is no longer a market? I think it's it's heavily influenced by the behavior of the central bank. So if you're asking me, would but would yields yeah. rise if it weren't for CB, central bank behavior? Yes, they would. What I would say, and, and John, I mean this, I think your question's brilliant. Anybody with a memory of July and August 1998 has got to ask that question about the artificiality of the of the bond market the note in the bill market in Japan. It's a huge deal, John. Huge deal. The way it's, I mean, come on, there's no liquidity there. Let me ask you a different question. When the cent Swiss Central Wait, Bank... Wait, who's running this interview? When the Swiss Central <laughs> Bank capped the exchange rate against yep. the euro, would you say there was no longer a market for, for Swiss francs? I never said that. But in I some sense, that. that would be true. In the, in the same sense that it's yeah. true, because they're... The central okay. bank is fixing an exchange rate in that world. John, why do we feel like we're in a class at NYU? Well, no, I'm happy to be in a class. I'm <laughs> happy to be that. in a class. No, no, but no, but folks, this is what, what Professor Schoenholz has done is moved from asset but, classes. But here's, from... but here's the interesting <clears throat> thing about the Euro-Swiss example. Yeah. For a long, long time, people thought that could not be broken. And then it was broken. And I tell you, if the S&B tried to bring back a Euro-Swiss floor, they'd have great difficulty doing so because the market wouldn't be convinced that it would be kept. That's now, correct. I do wonder with JGBs, as they've shown that they can shift 
where they cap the yield on a Japanese 10-year, I do wonder whether the market's going to test the Bank of Japan at some point, Kim. I think you're absolutely right. They will test. In fact, the whole one of the big problems with this approach, fixing an exchange rate or fixing a bond yield, is that once anybody suspects that you're going to change the policy, um, there will be lots of sales. And so the central bank would have to come in and buy. Look at the BOJ last week. They had to come in and buy aggressively just yeah. because people feared they might change policy. Well, this has been way interesting. We're going to do this on podcast. Kim Schoenholtz, uh, and this will go out on Apple Podcasts, also out at Spotify as well. Professor Schoenholtz, of course, with New York at University. It's been the story of the equity market here in the United States over the last three days. The Nasdaq Thursday down 1%, down almost 1.5% Friday, and close to more of the same in yesterday's session, down by 1.39%. Your next trading cue comes from Apple. Can Apple lift some battered sentiment for technology stocks? Will Power joining us now, Baird's senior research analyst. Will, as always, how many iPhones have you sold? Seems to be the first question we ask. Um, what's your base case for later on? Well, look, we're looking for a solid quarter, and good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, we're expecting the company to ship 42 million iPhones in the quarter, and you're right. That'll be the headline number, uh, as always. But I think, you know, an even greater focus, perhaps, could be the services revenue, and then, of course, you know, the next quarter guidance as we head into this, this next all-important iPhone cycle. Well, I think that's going to be really important because many people are going to be looking for where the growth comes from. And I noticed that Loop... Capital, Loop Ventures, were pointing out that the growth phase of the iPhone could well be coming to an end, Will. Do, do you see that too? Well, look, there's no question that smartphone sales globally, you know, have, have been at a weak spot, right? We're just not seeing much growth year over year, um, you know, from a broader market perspective. But where Apple's going to generate growth, of course, is was with that average selling price, which has been very impressive, particularly within you know, consumer electronics uh, generally. So we're looking for close to a $700 ASP, which is up pretty significantly wow. year over year. So candidly, that is the, the bigger growth driver in terms of driving revenue. So I think it's easy to lose sight of the fact that while iPhone units are growing very slowly year over year, the actual revenue growth is still growing double digits because of that ASP. Well, let's be clear here. The ASP in the quarter a year ago, the same quarter, was $606. Are you seriously saying we could get a $100 jump in average selling prices? Because that's phenomenal. Well, well, that's right. I mean, I will just if you look back this past quarter, uh, I think you were at seven twenty-eight. Uh, so we're expecting that to, you know, to drop, you know, sequentially as we get you know later into the cycle. But yes, we are looking for you know significant you know year-over-year yeah. growth in that metric. Well, let's do a reverse some of the parts. One hundred eighty-nine dollars per share. One hundred ninety dollars per share. Round it up. Let's make it two hundred dollars a share. How much per share is cash? Uh, well, today you've got close to thirty dollars. Okay, so two hundred down to one seventy. How much is services? What's the plug-in value per share of services? Well, you know that's a good question. I mean, you know, what do you cop it against? Do you look at you know the the Facebooks, the Netflixes? I mean, this is a business that you know, for perspective, this year will generate you know thirty-five to you know forty billion dollars of, of revenue. So, do you put a you know multiple amount? Uh, you know, you you get to you know, at least uh, yeah. you know, couple, perhaps a couple hundred billion dollars. 
Okay, a couple hundred billion dollars. I can't do the math, plus it's radio. We don't do math on radio. What I can say, Will, is if you X cash and X services, you're basically buying the rest of the company for what? Nothing's not the right phrase, but pretty close to nothing, right? Well, yeah, you're not you're not paying you know much over a you know double digit multiple for what's still a very strong you know cash generative uh, machine. Yeah. I think that's probably and fair. My point, John, in this exercise is we're all going to die. Apple's going to end, and we're all going to die. Apparently and, not. You know we're. You're like, and I, I think, John, you and full disclosure, UBS did some great work on this, as well as Will Power's great work at Baird. The answer is the average selling price is lights out. Stunning. Yeah, the ASP could be I, stunning relative to where we were a year all ago. the gloom people. Relative to where we were a year yeah. ago. Well, yeah. the, the services business, are you saying essentially we're already there at Target because the company wants services to be a $50 billion business? And based on your estimates, Will, it sounds like we're already there. Well, we're heading in the right direction, certainly, right? So, I mean, just to be to put a point on that, you know, for, for this year, we'll be at $37 billion, yeah. uh, in, in our forecast, you know, going to kind of mid-40s and 19s. So, yes, we think we are tracking properly. You know, I do think there are other opportunities and services that they've barely tapped into. I think one of those is content. We, we of course, know they haven't rolled out. You know, a traditional live streaming service, and it's not. It's less clear they're going to do that. Right. I do think there's some opportunities for a Netflix-like service, perhaps lighter, uh, to help supplement that as well as you move into 19 and 20. When you're on the conference call, what's like the McKinsey Boston consulting strategy of these guys? I mean, I, I get the I, we, we've gone through the financials. We all understand they're minting money. They're going to be a trillion dollar. This it's them and Amazon and and the New York Stock Exchange Fang Index. John, it's it's Amazon, Apple, and I can't remember the other one. Thirty three percent of the index is three stocks out of ten stocks, and that's great. But when you're on the conference call, what's their McKinsey-like big strategy. What's the big strategy of Mr. Cook and his team? Well, I think it's increasingly and has been, you know, about the broader ecosystem, right? So it's solidifying your position and ensuring that you don't fall into the traditional consumer electronics trap. And I think they've, you know, successfully navigated that today. But but it's on them to continue to, you know, push that envelope, uh, you know, further to drive new ways. To keep customers happy, to you know, to maintain that industry-leading you know retention, and so I think it's really uh, you know, right. capitalizing on that installed base that you have. Well, you also cover Netflix, and Netflix took an absolute beating yesterday on seemingly no news. Um, well, what do you make of these moves and the magnitude of the moves we're seeing in technology stocks at the moment? Well, it's, it's obviously part of a broader, you know, downdraft for, you know, high growth momentum names. I mean, you're seeing that across, you know, the SaaS space, too, as you look at some of our, you know, software uh, uh, coverage. So I think any of the, you know, the, the high single-digit, double-digit revenue multiple names, you know, were under pressure. There was, a, there was a high, you know, correlation there. But I guess the other thing fundamentally is, you know, Netflix does have more, you know, competition coming. That's not new. But, of course, you had some rumors here the last couple of days about Walmart ruling out sort of yeah. streaming service. Tough to know if that had much of an impact or not. Yeah, uh, but you know those those could be contributors as well. John, you want the real life Netflix? The last three times I've gone to it, they haven't had the movie I want. Now, granted, I'm looking for obscure, stupid bow tie stuff. But, but John, the, the history of the, bow tie. I go I'm to Amazon. To work out whether Tom no, no. is the face I, of America. Exactly, <laughs> <laughs> John. I go to Amazon, and often they have the movie. I go what to was, Apple can, can movies. You just, just for the audience, what was the movie? 
It was like a Lawrence of Arabia thing with camels. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was, no, seriously, it was some, it was some totally we'll obscure thing. thinking about downgrading but, the stock. <laughs> I, usually when I go to Netflix, they don't have the damn movie. I mean, I'm, you know, that's, well, that's my... Go on, to that go point, on you're right. I mean, Am I right? Netflix is, don't well, tell you're, that. you're right. I mean, <laughs> I mean Netflix has put an increasing uh, focus uh, on, on its original content, particularly shows, right? That, that's really where it's leading and and what's driving subscribers, yeah. right? Yeah, I'd agree that, you know, the movies in some respects are lacking, although, you know, well, they're, they're making some investments there too, so we'll see. See, that was a surveillance break exclusive. It was. Can, um, I, can I finish right. up with a serious question? Oh, please, go ahead. If I ask the analysts what's happening with tech, they'll give me a very different answer to what I get from, say, a cross-asset portfolio manager. At the moment, Will, I think people are looking at the potential for a rotation again out of some of these growthy names and perhaps into value. Well, is that a rotation that you can see happening? Is it something you have to think about? Well, look, I mean, candor, yeah, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm more focused on the names I've under coverage rather than, than a broader market call. I mean, it certainly feels like for at least the last couple of days you've perhaps seen some of that, but I guess I'm not in a position to, you know, make a broader, uh, you know, uh, you know, market call. Yeah. I mean, it feels like a lot of the fundamentals actually for many of these names are still in place. You know, valuation is another you know, part of that discussion. Will Power, great to catch up with you. That was wonderful. Can you take it back and just say Tom's wrong, so we don't have to. Please, Will. So we don't have to deal with this for another hour. (laughs) Just say Tom, you're wrong. Well, good good luck dealing with that. (laughs) Thanks a lot, Will. Will Power, bad senior research. Can you book him tomorrow? Would you please bring in Mr. Dunham? Sure. The UBS Wealth Management Global Chief Economist joining us right here, right now. Paul, it's great to catch up with you, as always, to get your thoughts. We had some policy tweaks from the Bank of Japan. Which one stood out most for you? Well, to be honest, I mean, what stood out is the Bank of Japan has done what it always does, which is basically nothing of, of any real note. They're carrying on. Um, they're carrying on with stimulus and they're just tweaking it in a way to make sure that they can carry on with stimulus. And it now stands out alone amongst the central banks, particularly in in this week, um, in not uh, dialing back on its its stimulus at all, but just continuing uh, with business as usual. So when people say this morning that this looks like a stealth tapering or the beginning somewhat, a baby step towards normalisation, what do you do, Paul? Laugh? Well, I mean, I, I think that there is um, a, a desire in the markets to look now for tightening everywhere. Um, but this wasn't it, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, they're juggling around. They, they've come out with lower inflation forecasts for the next couple of years. Uh, with that, you know, this is not really consistent with the idea that somehow secretly the Bank of Japan is trying to taper. Um, it, you know, they, they would at least have made a pretense of coming up with higher inflation if, if this was what they were trying to achieve. I look, Paul, at the, you know, as I mentioned to, to John Fair earlier, it's almost a Rube Goldberg construction. What is the downside to this strategy of almost a Band-Aid reflation? Um, I mean, I think that the, the the problems that still need to be addressed in Japan is why does the Japanese consumer not have higher inflation expectations? Why does the Japanese worker not have higher wage expectations? And you can't say it's because you know, we're in a deflation spiral because the Japanese consumer doesn't believe 
Okay. Inflation is low. So in the United so States, the policy strategy is missing something. Okay, in the United States in the 1920s, we came out of the 30s, the Depression, and we induced, induced a credit binge and business investment credit-driven binge. And are, are we just saying that they leverage up, but they can't do that, can they? Because they haven't cleared their previous debt, right? That's true, although we've got to recognize, I mean, a lot of the debt, um, the, the public sector debt that now exists in Japan uh, is held privately. I mean, it's overwhelmingly held privately in Japan. So this is an intergenerational wealth transfer. I mean, you know, the Japan's exactly. debt today is, is, yeah, but their, their debt to GDP ratio today is nothing compared to what it was in the UK in 1945, for example. Um, you know, the UK had uh, almost 250% debt to GDP ratio, and the economy still managed to, to chug along quite nicely throughout the 50s and 60s. So that's, I, I think we focus too much on the debt. That's less of a problem. What they need to do is be more productive in investment, you know, not build bridges nobody wants or you know, plaster the coastline with concrete, but actually use the government spending and use private spending in a more constructive way to move forward. Paul, we talked about this on the programme yesterday, and it's great to have you with us because we can get your perspective on this topic. Whether you go to Japan or go to Switzerland for that matter, these are rich countries, and you look around and everything seems to be okay, yet they have these emergency policy settings. Can you reconcile that with the sort of wealth of those particular nations, Paul? Well, I mean, there is this this issue generally uh, in in economics and in financial markets, the, the focus on the dynamic, on the growth story. And that's something we may have to start to reconsider as we move into um, periods where populations stop growing. Um, it's what I call the Ferrari a year problem. You know, you buy a Ferrari one year, you buy a Ferrari the next year, you buy a Ferrari the third year. I'm describing Tom Keane's consumption pattern. Sounds very and accurate, you end Paul. Up with zero growth in consumption. <laughs> You've basically got flat consumption of Ferraris, but you've still got a fleet of Ferraris at the end of the day. So this distinction between wealth as a driver of living standards and growth is, is a problem. But I think that there is an issue in Japan, because if you, if you venture outside of Tokyo or maybe Osaka, then you do come across yeah. uh, signs of, of economic, not deprivation, that's putting it a bit strongly, but certainly a weaker economic climate where... You know, living standards are poor right. and where there's perhaps a sense of economic despair. I'm going to do a chart, Paul, off of this, and it's not going to be in my Ferrari. I do like the Ferraris, you know. John, the three-car garage thing off of Central Park doesn't work. No. So I get the Ferrari. Who wants to tell Paul no, that you, don't, get, you I, don't drive, you're driven? Yeah, but the limo's a Ferrari. So, Paul, if I run per capita, IMF per capita nominal versus IMF per capita real, those are two different charts. I would suggest yep. the spirit of a nation is shown, thank you, Q, in the nominal chart, which uh -oh. is a per capita GDP that's been flat since the 1990s. I mean, you know, going back to 1995. Well what, what I think we have to recognize in Japan is, and, and I, I was working in Japan in the early 90s, and you know, the, the economy was massively inefficient in those days. Um, you, know, you, you used to have to take out a second mortgage just to you know, buy a plate of sushi in a restaurant in Tokyo. Um, and so what has happened, I think, and this is a problem with the nominal, is that you have had an element of what an economist would call good 
disinflation or good deflation, yep. where efficiencies have lowered the cost of things. So I accept that, that nominal GDP is important, particularly for debt, and nominal GDP per capita is important for debt. But the real GDP per capita, um, I think, is capturing the fact that Japan has gone from being a very, very inefficient country in a lot of areas uh, as it affected the consumer back in the early 90s to one which is certainly more efficient than right. used to be the case. And John, the chart on real per capita Japan is a moonshot. Yep. I mean, it's a very constructive chart. Paul, before we lose you in the limited time we have, I do want to get your thoughts on the Federal Reserve. For me, this just sort of underlines how alone the Fed is raising interest rates with the BRJ showing no sign that it's going to hike anytime soon and the ECB doing something quite similar a number of months ago. Um, Paul, can the Fed carry on going it alone? Well, it's not quite alone. Uh, there's the Bank of England, um, of course. Um, and, you know, we shouldn't ignore the Bank of England. Um, but I think that we've got to perhaps uh, move away from this idea that it's all about interest rates. Because, of course, central bank policy has always rested on three pillars. Monetary, that's the interest rates. Quantitative, which is the, the money printing or the bond buying. And regulatory. And what we're now seeing is that after a long time where two of the pillars were largely in abeyance, I mean, nobody paid much attention to the quantitative or the regulatory policy, they've now become more vibrant, more important. So I think we've got to recognize that it's not just about rates. It's also about how are you balancing liquidity supply with liquidity demand. And that's the other important thing. Yeah. You know, what is happening with liquidity demand as well? A central bank could keep rates unchanged, could keep quantitative policy unchanged and yet still be tightening policy if liquidity demand was going up um, and that's something that you know it's it's not so easy to put on a bloomberg chart but that's something which i think is going to be increasingly important paul it's so great to get your insight on a big week for central bank decisions paul donovan ubs wealth management global chief economist there thanks for listening to the bloomberg surveillance podcast Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.